0: There were two more murders, 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. of murder. For some, no evidence in the world will convince them that someone they love was a monster in disguise. On July 16th, 1955, a man was arrested for horrific crime that shocked Berkeley, California. A crime that, no matter how much evidence was stacked up against him, his mother was convinced he did not commit. So, if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Stephanie Bryan, like most girls her age, walked home from her middle school every single weekday and was often accompanied by a friend who lived nearby. On the afternoon of April 28, 1955, the 14-year-old made the trip with friend Mary Ann Stewart, and the girls, like most days, made stops at a local donut shop for a snack and a pet shop to fawn over some new additions. As they headed to the entrance of the Claremont Hotel, Marianne bid farewell to her friend as she had tennis lessons at a nearby court and knew one of Stephanie's daily shortcuts involved walking through the hotel's drive through and cutting through the street behind it. In total, that walk from the parking lot to her home took five minutes, so when she wasn't home by 4.15 p.m., her mother started to grow concerned. Unsure if the girls had simply got caught up doing something, she started to make calls to the school and to the homes of Stephanie's friends. Everyone gave the same story, that they saw her leave the school and walk towards home like always. Mary Bryan's next call was to her husband. He rushed home from Oakland Hospital, where he was a radiologist, and together they phoned the police. What happened next was the largest missing person search in Berkeley, California history. Police canvassed the hotel grounds well into the night, and when the sun came up the next day, they started all over again. But there was nothing indicating what may have happened to Stephanie. No clues as to why she had not come home. Then on May 1st, one of her textbooks was found discarded on the side of Franklin Canyon Road near Martinez. So that 100-person search changed its course, and after adding six FBI agents, started to comb the Contra Costa Hills looking for more of Stephanie's belongings, or Stephanie herself. But again, they came back empty-handed. But what they did find out was that several witnesses in the area claimed to have seen a girl struggling in the back of a gray Pontiac near Tummel Road in Berkeley, about 20 to 30 minutes from where the textbook was found. One claimed he even saw her scream no as the male driver reached around and hit her. None of these people came forward when the investigation originally started. Months passed, and as Stephanie's story started to grow cold, a new woman's was just getting started. Georgia Abbott was a 32-year-old president of the Oakland branch of the State Cosmetologist Association, and according to the stories, she loved a good party. So when her friend suggested getting some costumes for an upcoming get-together, Georgia happily led her downstairs to her basement to retrieve a hat that she knew would be the perfect addition. As she went through the trunks of old clothes, she found something that she had never seen before, a red purse that she was certain did not belong to her. Looking inside, she found an ID, and one look at it sent a chill down her spine. The girl's photo was that of Stephanie Bryan. After her friend confirmed her suspicion, Georgia called the police and they came to her house to figure out what was going on. When they entered, they found both Georgia, who remained composed while she explained how she came upon the purse, and her 27-year-old husband, Burton Abbott, an accounting student at UC Berkeley, who sat silently on the couch doing a crossword puzzle almost as if he didn't notice the police and the fact that they were there because a missing girl's belongings were found in his house. Police immediately noticed something was off. Stephanie's case was the most publicized missing persons investigation in the Bay Area history, and Burton seemed, as they would later describe it, quote, deeply uninterested. As police continued their search through the partially finished basement, they realized that because half the floor was filled with dirt, they needed to dig if they wanted to find anything else. So, they did. And as they dug, they found Stephanie's bra, glasses, notebooks, and two library books. They immediately started questioning Burton, who claimed that their unfinished basement was used as a polling place a few months prior and that it had likely been left there by a complete stranger. Police were, of course, skeptical and continued to question him about his whereabouts on the day of Stephanie Bryan's disappearance. He claimed, in a story that would change repeatedly, that he left his home at around 11 a.m. to go to the family cabin in Trinity County, stopping first in Sacramento before continuing that evening. The car he drove to make that trip? A gray Pontiac that he traded shortly after this trip. Burton Abbott became the prime suspect in Stephanie's case. But those who knew him, like his wife, who met him while he was a patient at Livermore Veterans Hospital, were steadfast that he couldn't possibly be involved in her disappearance. Burton was a thin man, with a chest caved in from a serious bout of tuberculosis that left him in the hospital for quite some time, a frame many thought was incapable of subduing a 14-year-old girl. He was a good student, was married, had a 4-year-old son, and shared a home with his own mother, Elsie. When police pressed on with their questioning, they found out that Elsie Abbott had found the purse earlier, but claimed she did not connect it to the missing girl. Two days after being named a suspect, a reporter from the San Francisco Examiner named Ed Montgomery descended upon the Abbott's Wildwood cabin, where, just after sunset, dogs sniffing around the area came upon a leg sticking out of the ground with a foot clad in a small white saddle shoe. Ed hurried back to town, called the police, and then called his editors. When another reporter from the Examiner rushed to the Abbott's home to tell them what he had found, Burton broke down crying and said, I don't know how the body got there. I don't know anything about it. I'm still staying with my story. Burton Abbott was arrested on July 16, 1955, and Stephanie's body was retrieved from the cabin about 300 miles away. Her cause of death was later determined to be bludgeoning. Very quickly after his arrest, Burton Abbott was charged, tried, and convicted of Stephanie Bryan's murder. It seemed pretty cut and dry as far as evidence went. Not only were the purse and other items found in his home, and her body found just a few hundred yards from his cabin, but hair and fiber found in his car were matched to those found on her head and clothing. There was a whole lot that proved that he was the man responsible, and very little that said he was not. His trial became the most publicized in Californian history, and for the entire four months, it graced the front page of almost every single local newspaper every single day. After being branded a sexual deviant and a psychopath, the jury took seven days to return with their guilty verdict, and after they did, Burton was sentenced to death. The thing was, for many, the case wasn't as cut and dry as it originally appeared, While there were a number of things connecting him to the case, some argued that none of the physical evidence directly placed him with Stephanie. Her own father worried the evidence wasn't enough to ensure a conviction, and the prosecution and defense both argued vastly different versions of a timeline that started with Stephanie's disappearance. Some witnesses claimed to see Burton on April 28th at a donut shop right by Stephanie's Middle School around the time of dismissal, at a time when he told police that he was halfway to Trinity County. Another witness saw him run a red light just outside the Claremont Hotel at around 3.30 p.m., which went along with earlier testimonies of a girl screaming in the back of the Pontiac. And another claimed to have visited Burton's cabin on the day after Stephanie's disappearance and that he was acting strangely, not letting the visitor inside the cabin like he usually did while the Abbott's babysitter said he called home that night and told the family not to join him for the weekend, claiming the weather was bad. But the defense claimed, like his wife surmised, that Burton's physique would make it impossible for him to attack, subdue, drag, attempt to rape, and murder a 14-year-old girl. That required a strength that Burton just didn't have. He only weighed 134 pounds, while Stephanie was 105. And in order to prove their point, his lawyers requested that he remove his shirt in the middle of the trial, so the jury could see his bare, concave chest covered with scars from where doctors had to remove parts of his ribs due to his tuberculosis it was compelling, but failed to undermine all of the other evidence. In fact, his own doctor got on the stand and said that his prior diagnosis and ailments did not render him, quote, crippled, and said that not only had he recovered years before, but that he noticed a striking change in Burton's personality between when he last saw him and his visit after Stephanie's disappearance. On the stand, a cocky and arrogant Burton Abbott was questioned for 13 and a half hours, 11 of which was with the prosecution, and his inability to remember long stretches of time, the uncovering of a major lie in his alibi, and changing story became the final nail in his coffin. When the final verdict was read on January 25th, 1956, Elsie Abbott screamed and ran out of the courtroom. The chaos drowned out the sound of a second guilty verdict, the one for murder, and Burton Abbott was doomed. In accordance with the California law, Burton was granted an automatic appeal to the Supreme Court, but they simply affirmed his death sentence while he sat behind the bars of San Quentin awaiting his execution. On March 15, 1957, after over a year of trying to commute his sentence, Burton Abbott was scheduled to die at 11 a.m., His lawyer, who had just had an appeal denied, tried to contact the governor of California, hoping to stall the execution. Unfortunately, Governor Goodwin J. Knight was aboard a naval ship out at sea and was out of reach of a phone. Not wanting to give up, the attorney made an arrangement with a local TV station and broadcasted his plea to the governor on air. At 9.02, Governor Knight granted a one-hour stay of execution by phone, and within six minutes, a writ of habeas corpus was presented to the Supreme Court of California. By 10.42, the petition was denied. The attorney tried again to appeal to the federal district court, but they refused to further postpone his execution. At 11.12 a.m., Governor Knight was reached again and agreed to grant another stay, But at 11.15 a.m., Burton Abbott was led to the gas chamber and strapped to the chair while the governor was on the phone waiting for the warden to pick up. The executioner pulled the lever three minutes later, just as the warden answered. His response when Governor Knight said the execution was to be delayed was that it was too late. Burton Abbott was declared dead, and the men hung up the phone. Just before his death, Burton spoke with a prison doctor. And when asked about Stephanie, Burton replied, I can't admit it, Doc. Think of what it would do to my mother. She couldn't take it. Until her last breath, Elsie Abbott defended her son, believing that he was murdered by the state of California when he was executed. The devoted mother was so convinced that her son was innocent that she told everyone that the real killer was still at large believing her own brother set up her son for murder. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on July 17th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.